morning, everyone. A couple of weeks ago, as we continued our Up, In and Out series, we uh, reflected on the life of Stephen. And we discovered that according to Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, that Stephen was full of five things. Bit of congregational participation again. Who can remember all or any of the five things that Stephen was full of? The Holy Spirit, one, two, sorry, faith, thank you, Elizabeth, three, sorry, grace, four, one, power. That encourages me no end. <laughs> and for those of us who, uh, who follow Jesus and our Christian disciples, we should, and we, we said this a fortnight ago, we should seek to be a Stephen. And so we should be full or increasingly filled with these things. So question this morning, how's the levels? How's the levels? Today we, uh, we're going to look at the death or rather the murder of Stephen, who seems died at a relatively young age. Only the good die young, sang Billy Joel. It's true of Stephen. Only the good die young. And he'll be forever remembered as the first Christian martyr or, or proto-martyr. But before we read about Stephen's final moments, I wanted to draw attention to the fact, and many of us already know this, that, that people today, are still dying for their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at this morning is not just a first century or kind of distant reality and phenomenon. At the beginning of 2014 time, which is an American weekly news magazine, confirmed the following. Reports of Christians dying for their faith almost doubled between 2012 and 2013. With more Christians martyred in Syria last year than the worldwide total for 2012. Open Doors, a non-denominational group that supports persecuted Christians said that 2,123 Christians were killed because of their faith in 2013. That's up from 1,201 last year. And that 1,213 martyrs were recorded in Syria alone. According to uh, Reuters, Reuters, the international news agency, as they reported on this in 2014, this is what they wrote. This, reflecting on those figures, is a very minimal count based on what has been reported in the media. Estimates by other groups put the annual figure as high as 8,000. I was at uh, breakfast this week with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as you do, uh, along with 200 others, okay, so you know, it wasn't, wasn't just him and I. Wish it had. But he was sharing that the average Anglican today worldwide is 35 years old 
female, black, and persecuted for their faith. And so as we rewind and go back 2,000 years or thereabouts and think about the first Christian martyr, I don't want us to lose sight of the sobering thought that right now, in somewhere like North Korea or Somalia or Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, which are the five most dangerous countries for Christians to live and practice their faith, that right now, there will be a human being, a person, a brother or sister in Christ who's being intimidated, threatened, maybe even killed as we sit here in comfort and freedom without the fear of verbal and physical abuse when we leave here because of what we have just been doing. And so rather, or rather Stephen's story, or at least a core aspect of it, it's not unique. It is striking, yes, but it's not unique. It's not history. It's current. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts 7. It's page 1100 in the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to read from verse 54 through to verse 3 of chapter 8. Verses which capture the horrific yet grace-filled moments of Stephen's dramatic death. But before we come to the rather grim details, one critical question to ask is why? Why? What led to this shocking incident? Now, I don't want to labor the point or sensationalize this for added effect. But what actually happened to Stephen is deeply disturbing, and if we sanitize it too much, which we have a tendency to do, we will miss something. And so rather than, than simply saying Stephen was stoned to death and, and kind of then just move on, let me read one paragraph or perspective I came across this week. To hurl rocks at a living human being slowly stripping off greater and smaller pieces of flesh, crushing bones in legs, arms, and face, creating wounds in many places to number, in too many places to number, suggests to me a torture whose horror is literally beyond anything I can conceive. The sheer intimacy of the deed it's slice-by-slice slice decimation of a living body, the sound of stone-hitting flesh. Surely no person with any shred of humanity could participate in such a ritual murder. It's grotesque. Again, why? What was it that prompted or caused a group of people to do this? To inflict such suffering on a fellow human being? The answer is because of what Stephen said. Because of what he stood for. Because of what he believed. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 6, Stephen had been framed 
He had been in dialogues with some members of the local synagogue, but as a result of his wisdom, and he was full of that, they couldn't cope with him, nor could they cope with his ability to debate with them. And so they had him set up. And they seized him, and they persuaded a bunch of false witnesses to lie through their teeth. And their fabricated story boiled down to two accusations. Stephen's alleged disrespect for the temple and the law, which were two of Judaism's most sacred things. To quote verse 13 of chapter 6, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. And so Stephen is hauled before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Jewish religious and political life. And he's asked a simple question. Beginning of verse 7. Are these charges true? And then Stephen launches into an astonishing speech that runs from verse 2 of chapter 7 right through to verse 53. It's a kind of defense, but not as we know it. Stephen is, is not setting out to seek uh, or to prove his innocence, but rather he's on the front foot. He's the prosecutor, so to speak, not the defense attorney, and he's going for the jugular. Stephen's staggering speech has also been described as a sermon. It's often referred to as the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's twice as long as Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. But, you know, in some ways, I think it's more helpful to describe it as storytelling. Stephen tells a story. And it's their story. It's the story. And what Stephen does is he goes for the big picture and he takes them right back to Abraham. Although you could say he starts with God. If you look at verse 2, it says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So as far as Stephen is concerned, it all starts with God. He's kind of behind everything. He's in control of everything. But then, moving to Abraham, who is critical because it's with him that the story of the Jewish people begins. And it is with Abraham that Genesis begins the story of how the world is to be set right after the mess we made of it. And so going from Abraham, Stephen tracks, this is, this is what he does, and it's incredible, he tracks the big story from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to the prophets, and finally he finishes up with a rather direct reference to Jesus, who he calls the righteous one who they have just recently betrayed and brutally murdered. And in amongst, or kind of meshed into this retelling of the story, Stephen tackles the issue of the temple and the law. And he makes the point, he says, listen, God doesn't live in a temple made by your hands. He's not, and he can never be confined to one place, one locality on earth. And these people, you see, were in danger. In fact, were in guilty of having an exaggerated view of the temple. And so quoting the great prophet Isaiah, Stephen says, look at verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. 
As the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see, the Sanhedrin, so many people, they wanted to restrict God. They wanted to contain God. Something people have wanted to do for years, still want to do. But you see, Aslan is on the move. God is always on the move. You can't box him in. You can't dictate his whereabouts or regulate his sphere of influence. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the whole earth. And this is such a powerful picture. The whole earth is God's footstool. I don't know how you imagine that. God sticking his feet up on the earth. And so this inflated, narrow, blinkered view of the temple and of the presence and the activity of God, it's, it's misguided. It's out of sync with the big story, the actual story. And so what Stephen does by retelling this story is he dismantles their understanding. He deconstructs their worldview. And then when he comes to the law, he simply makes the point, listen, you were given it, but you haven't obeyed it. You were given it, you haven't lived to it. But just before he says that, he rather directly, bravely, and you could say stupidly, comes out with this comment, which seals his fate. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. It's not how to win friends and influence people. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. What do you hear this one? You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did, did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now, you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels have not obeyed it. And you see, what Stephen effectively did was he aligned himself and this new church, this new community of the king. He aligned them with Abraham, with Joseph, with the prophet, and with Jesus, if you like, the good guys. But he aligned his opponents, the Sanhedrin, with the Egyptians and Joseph's brothers and those who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and their ancestors who killed the prophets, the bad guys. And the proof that they stand in the line of the bad guys and that in their shadow is that they have just betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And you see, it's at this point, we will get to our Bible reading for today, don't worry. But it's at this point, as the penny drops, and as the Sanhedrin process what he's been saying, as he retells this story, it's at this point, that pandemonium breaks out 
or I don't think it's inappropriate to say all hell breaks loose as the reference to gnashing of teeth in verse 54 indicates. And that's where we pick up our reading for today. But one of the lessons that I, I want to draw out this morning, or comments that I want to make, is this. It relates to the importance of knowing the big story and being able to tell it. The importance of knowing the, your, God's big story and being able to communicate it. Stephen's ability to articulate what had happened and paint this word picture of events that led to Jesus was and is impressive. His understanding of Old Testament scriptures and how they teach us vital lessons and explain what God was and is doing is a real example. And I am convinced that we can and should learn from his example. And I don't say that to intimidate or frighten anyone who immediately thinks, hey, hang on a minute, I could never, I could never even begin to retell God's big story, the big story, my big story. I don't say this to make anyone feel guilty. I simply want to emphasize the point we have an amazing story about an amazing God that is worth knowing and sharing. And we have the resources to do it. Part of the reason, those who were here four years ago, part of the reason for doing the Essential Word series was to tell the big story. And so what we did was we, we isolated 50 Old Testament passages, 50 New Testament passages, which we said helped to provide a framework so that we could learn from history, so that we could develop a biblical perspective on history to enable us to make greater sense of the big picture and so that we wouldn't repeat the mistakes and sins of the past. You know, it is so important that we don't just dip in and dip out of God's word looking for devotional delicacies and thoughts for the day. Those are helpful, those are important, but if that is it, we also have got to read God's word whole. Even the bits that puzzle us, confuse us, and bore us. Got to read it whole. We've got to gain a greater depth of understanding in order that we can discern, in order that we can articulate, in order that we can share the big, broad scope of God's amazing story. Because sometimes the story is the only way of telling the truth. Does anyone remember the Bible in 50 words? Now, I know I could be accused of contradicting myself and trying to reduce it all down to bite-sized pieces, but this that I'm going to show you, some of you will remember this. This is a, a helpful summary that could be used as a springboard to kind of spring off this and, and fill in the other details. So are you ready? Here's, here's the Bible in 50 words. Take a deep breath. Here it goes. 
God made Adam bet, Noah arced, Abram split, Joseph ruled, Jacob fooled, Bush talked, Moses balked, Pharaoh plagued, people walked, sea divided, tablets guided, promise landed, Saul freaked, David peaked, prophets warned, Jesus born, God walked, love talked, anger crucified, hope died, love rose, spirit flamed, word spread, God remained. It's brilliant. Another helpful framework to see the Bible as an unfolding drama is to see it as, as kind of different acts in a story, different acts in a drama. Act one, creation. Act two, fall. Act three, Israel, people and land. Act four, Jesus. Act five, church and mission. Act six, return of the king. There's the Bible in six acts. The Bible is, and I realize I say this against a backdrop of pluralism and a plethora of worldviews, the Bible is one comprehensive true story of the world. It's the real story. It's the grand story. It's, and I know people don't like this, it's the meta-narrative. It tells and it retells the unfolding story of redemption and reconciliation, and we need to know it be able to tell it. And therefore, it's important we capture a sense of all this, rather than simply see it. And I know sometimes the way we preach the Bible indicates this. Rather than simply see it as a fragmented mosaic of little bits. Stephen tells a big story. And through telling it, he challenges perceptions and understanding and misunderstanding. And as he tells it, and this will happen, it provokes a reaction. And the Sanhedrin and those who are closely associated and sympathetic to it are appalled by Stephen's rendering of the story, appalled by his telling of their story. As far as they were concerned, Stephen was a heretic and a blasphemer, but according to his version of events, he shifts the spotlight and exposes them as guilty. They're the ones who are heretics and blasphemers, and they can't cope. And so as we pick up what happens next, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. It's a long introduction, wasn't it? <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. We're starting at verse 54, chapter 7, page 1100. When they heard this, this is the story being told. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Don't miss that. I don't have time to really go into that. But you know, in Hebrews, we hear about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Stephen looks and sees Jesus standing. Stephen's not only standing up for Jesus, Jesus is standing up for Stephen. I love that idea. I'd love to explore it in greater depth, but I'm not going to. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Luke, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy and dismantle the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Grab a seat. Don't worry, I'm not just going to make a few comments on this, but you know the contrast in, in attitude and action between the killers and Stephen could not be more striking. His accusers are out of control, they're hate-filled, they're gnashing their teeth, they're covering their ears, they're screaming at the top of their voices, they're hell-bent literally on crushing the life out of this man, whereas Stephen, and I find this extraordinary every time I read this and engage with it, Stephen appears at peace. And his eyes are fixed and focused on Jesus. And he's in a prayerful state. He just commits his spirit to Jesus. And he's willing to forgive. And in a final cry that reflects the example and the teaching of his Lord. Because here's someone you see who really did walk as Jesus walked. And so he prays for his killers. Lord, do not hold a sin against them. Peaceful, prayerful, forgiving. I don't know about you, but I'd love that, those words to be used to describe me. Peaceful, prayerful, forgiving. I hope and pray none of us can ever find ourselves in the same circumstances Stephen found himself in, and it's highly unlikely. But there probably will be times when ever telling our story, telling God's story, will lead to us being misunderstood and criticized and isolated and ridiculed and verbally abused and rejected and judged. But remember, Jesus did say to his disciples, listen, see, because you belong to me, you should expect an adverse reaction. The world is going to hate you. But the question is, how will we respond? Is it possible to react like Stephen? Well, I believe we can and we should, but the secret is in black and white as to why he could. We know why Stephen could react the way he reacted. Because he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of grace. And that's what makes a radical difference in his life and in each and every life. Genuine, spirit-filled, grace-filled Christians react like Jesus. Can I say that again? Can I say that in capital letters if you can do that? Genuine, spirit-filled, grace-filled Christians react like Jesus, reflect Jesus, even when their backs are against the wall, even when they are treated unfairly, their attitude and their behavior is countercultural. It doesn't make sense. They dance to the beat of a different drum. They buck the trend. 
And so for us here this morning who belong to Jesus and have Stephen as one of our spiritual brothers in the Lord, we have so much to learn from him about two things. Storytelling, Christ-like living. Even Christ-like dying. And so my message this morning, or in a sense the message for this morning, is the same as two weeks ago. Just go seek to be a Stephen. I'm not suggesting for a minute we should seek to be martyred. But there is an aspect of being a martyr that I do want to encourage us to embrace. And some of you already know this. But the word martyr technically means witness. The word martyr technically means witness. And in Acts 1, as Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples, you'll remember what he promised. He says, listen, see when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Not you might be, could be, should be. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The issue is not whether those of us who follow Jesus are his witnesses. The issue is what kind of witnesses are we? Because we, we will be, we are his witnesses. As we leave this church, as we go back to our homes, as we go into our communities, we go back to our workplaces, people will hopefully meet and engage with Jesus in us. And we've also said it before, we're often the only Bible that many people read. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And for each and every Christian sitting here this morning, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives within, he indwells us. It's our calling as Christians. Here, if you like, our triangle up in, here's the out dimension. We are to be his martyrs wherever we go and find ourselves. In what is for Christians an increasingly inhospitable and downright dangerous world, especially it is for those who seek to be a Stephen, who seek to tell God's story irrespective of the cost. So question, can Jesus get a witness? But before we finish and I'm done, there is, there is one glimmer of hope in what is an otherwise harrowing tale. Because you see, in what we, we read together, we are introduced to Saul, the man who approves of this murder, the individual who looks after the coat of the killers, the one who begins destroying, dismantling the church, dragging men and women out of their homes because of their faith and belief in Jesus and throwing them into prison. And I realize there's not a lot of hope in those details in and of themselves. But a chapter later, and we'll see this in three weeks, but as we zoom out and as we keep retelling the story, and, and that's hopefully what, I, what, we're, what we're doing, as we keep retelling the story, we find that Saul's life is turned upside down and inside out by the same Jesus who changed Stephen's life, by the same Jesus who still transforms lives. Today, you see, the story, thank God, continues. And here's the thing. Given what we know about where this story's heading, we have everything to look forward to. And as Saul, or Paul, as he was later renamed, eventually came to say, and I can't help but think that as he wrote this line, he had in mind 
those moments when he held or looked after coats of killers. And as he watched this young guy, prayerful, peaceful, forgiving as he died. I can't help but think as Paul wrote this line to the church at Philippi, he had Stephen in mind. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. 